Hello and welcome to the You Matter podcast. I'm Jo Turner and this is episode four. Welcome back. Following my last podcast, where I interviewed five brilliant women in healthcare, I'm continuing that theme, interviewing an undeniably brilliant woman in physiotherapy, the amazing and very well-known Joe Gibson. The conversation isn't about shoulders, and that was very deliberate. I have been very interested in Joe Gibson's career, partly because I am interested in shoulders, but also because I have always found Joe to be not only an inspirational clinician, but somebody I could 100% relate to. She always seems extremely approachable. She's someone who is incredibly supportive of physiotherapists following in her past, trying new things. She seems to be able to strike a balance which not everyone can achieve, uh, rising up through the ranks of physiotherapy or indeed healthcare, staying very human and, as I say, very approachable and just seems like a thoroughly nice person. (laughs) And during the course of this conversation, I didn't change that view, but I did learn an awful lot about her past, her career, and unsurprisingly, it's not all... Uh, perfect. It's yes, it's a stellar career, but like all of us, she has had to navigate some uh, difficult periods. Uh, She hasn't been immune to the pitfalls that we experience in healthcare. And so I think the conversation is going to be really, really helpful to so many people. Um, Maybe giving them confidence that yes, there are there are hurdles to overcome, but it's possible you can find your way through. And it doesn't mean you need to change who you are. Uh, You can you can stay very, 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 very down to earth, um, just like Joe Gibson. So I hope you enjoy the conversation. I'd love to hear your feedback on it and the things that uh, you take home from it, what things hit home, what you enjoy the most. And I'll be back for a roundup at the end. So welcome back to episode four of You Matter. And I am so pleased to have Joe Gibson with me here today. I'm excited because I've been following Joe through most of my physio career because I've had quite an interest in shoulders, but I just always found Joe's work really easy to digest, really relevant. And I always found Joe interesting in her approachableness if that's a word and um so joe firstly thank you so much for agreeing to be on you matter it's a real privilege to have you oh it's my absolute pleasure (laughs) and actually that first point is where i'd like to start if that's okay so joe rightly or wrongly when i've observed your career to me it seems as if you are someone who has risen through the ranks of not just physio but the medical world as well you've communicated with all sorts of people who frankly I would think are terrifying uh, and just seem to have I don't know gone through this process without turning into a monster (laughs) and I don't know if you have a different take on that but that's my impression of you and I know I'm not alone in that opinion so what's what's your take on that Joe? Oh Joe that's that's really lovely and quite humbling and I I kind of you know what we like about hearing nice things about ourselves it's always slightly uncomfortable um oh 
I mean, it's a lovely observation and it means a huge amount. And I, I guess there's a couple of things, really. I think in terms of not being changed by the opportunities that I've had um, is because I realise I've been lucky to have them, but I hope I've made the most of them. But I think also because I'm surrounded by lots of amazing clinicians that do a fantastic job every day. And I know that I'm nothing special. I just happen to have a voice and a forum because of opportunities that were given to me. And I you know, I've got a great belief in treating people the way I want to be treated, which is with respect and being kind and appreciating somebody else's opinion, even if it's not the same as mine, but also having a massive belief in this profession of ours and wanting to really kind of make my small contribution to driving it forward. And if you're given a forum, you kind of want to do the best with that. And I guess my upbringing was always I did that by being sensitive to other people and their belief system and challenging in a way that allowed them to reflect on that and maybe think differently without alienating them. And so I guess that's just central to who I am. Mm. Um, and I guess I'm, you know, it's always good to challenge people, but I'd much rather do it in a way that empowers them and gets them to reflect. Um, but yeah, I just like people and I'm just interested in people. And I feel hugely lucky to have met all the amazing people I have over the years, really. But it's lovely that the, the perception is that I haven't changed a lot and I'm approachable because, you know, I'm in the, the business of education. So if you're mm. not approachable and people don't feel they can speak to you, then, then what's the point? Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, I, I guess it seems obvious to you because that's your natural way of being. But you're absolutely right. That last point about... Um, the fact that people feel they can come and ask you what they might perceive to be silly questions or um, just know that you're someone who will give them the time and, as you say, maybe not feed them the answer, but help them find the answer. Um, yeah, and I, as I say, I'm certainly not alone in that opinion. And I think I put a, um, a comment on Twitter that I, I wish every body part had a Joe Gibson and I stand by that statement. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's really lovely. (laughs) (laughs) Put that one on a Um, (laughs) T-shirt. Joe, I'm deliberately not wanting to ask you too much about shoulders. Um, And apologies, because I know you like talking about shoulders. Mm -hmm. But would you mind, with, with that idea of a sort of career pathway in mind, everybody has touchstones and moments in their career, either where they perhaps take a change of direction or where things could have gone one of two ways, maybe good or bad. Would you mind just taking us back and giving us a little bit of your story? Oh, of course. Um, yeah, I, and, and again, it's a really interesting one to reflect on. I, I think like a lot of physios, I was a failed medic. I had a place to go and do uh, medicine at St Andrews. Um, I used to run a, a reasonable standard competitively, got injured not long before my A-levels and unfortunately disca- discovered Party Central at exactly the wrong time. <laughs> but I think actually, you know, I'm a great believer in fate. I, I don't always tell my kids this when I'm getting them to work hard. But I think, you know, it it kind of gave me a bit of space that made me realise I wasn't sure medicine was actually what I wanted to do. And I'd kind of always said I was going to do it because my dad was a doctor and it kind of I was following in his footsteps and he was clearly at the top of his game so very inspirational but yeah I so I basically flunked it and it was actually a friend um, from school that said to me look you want to do something in sports you want to help people why don't you do physiotherapy and it literally that was my road in Mm. Um, and I went and did the interviews and to be honest the first year I was I must have been a real pain in the neck I didn't really engage I was reasonably bright so I coasted my exams and I remember the principal at the end of the uh, year saying joke 
you're going to retake that exam and you're going to get over 70 percent because if you don't you're not staying on the course and it was wow. like what and she said <laughs> you're just cruising you know and it was like blooming heck nobody's ever said that to me before um and I'd actually applied to do psychology at Bradford I think and got a place but when I saw it, it was like five hours of lectures a week I knew it wasn't the course for me because I need some direction so then second year we met patients that was the game changer that was what I was all about and then it became real so that was awesome so I guess I guess that lady she I you know I, I'd never really thought on it before but I think the fact that she really challenged me and said look you you've got an opportunity here and you're lucky that you don't find this too difficult so will mm. you just get on with it and make and do the best you can instead of coasting along in parties so I did um and then I, I obviously had I had some great jobs um and I, I'm trying to think probably one of the first things that made me really think was I did a rotation in Nottingham that was my first job um and I did a rotation with people with learning difficulties it was called mental handicap in those days and I never forget having this interchange with this little guy who had gargoyleism he was 32 can remember him as clear as day now and we were having a real giggle and every time he used to come in the room I'd, I'd shout his surname and you know in a kind of uh, let's say we'll use my name Gibson oh, Gibson and he'd absolutely <laughs> chuckle and whatever and I got hauled into the office by the people that were in charge saying that I was being disrespectful and I was like it really made me kind of I wasn't very happy initially but when I reflected on it I thought wow you know it's really interesting other people's perceptions and maybe I'm not taking this seriously enough so that definitely fueled an interest in communication which I probably already had because of my dad because that was his big interest um, and then I kind of got into physio, I, you know, I got various jobs. Um, I started in Nottingham, ended up relocating to Liverpool, much to my parents' horror, um, because Nottingham had such a great reputation. But I met my husband, so I blame him. So I moved to Liverpool, fantastic move for me. Um, ended up doing a training post in outpatients um, and then got to a point where I was just a bit kind of what next? And I and I'm not a great, I every so often I think I'm going to give myself an easier life and just sail along and enjoy treating my patients and life will be great. I'm just not very good at it, Joe. I need to be learning and being inquisitive and looking at different ways of doing things and continually reflecting on what I think. And so if I'm honest, I got a little bit bored. I got a bit frustrated with the NHS because the management style at that time was very didactic. And again, my leadership style is nothing like that. Um, so yeah, lots of frustration. So cut a long story short, set up a private practice with a friend of mine. And just at the point I set up a private practice, I met, um, I did a muscle imbalance course about shoulders, which I sat there thinking, oh my God, I need to get about 500 patients back and apologize and give them some decent exercise. <laughs> um, but also Simon Frostick came from Liverpool. Now, Simon was um, a consultant who worked with a very famous shoulder guy, Angus Wallace, over in Nottingham, who I'd met when I was there as a junior, incredibly charismatic uh, man. And he'd left his part. I remember doing a ward round with him after the M1 plane crash mm. um, and going around seeing the patients, which in itself was an experience. But he was getting all passionate about shoulder arthroplasty. And I'm not being funny, but for me, that is not the most exciting thing. And yet he was just so passionate. And that was always there in the back of my mind, how great to feel like that about what you do. So when Simon came to Nottingham, lots of things just kind of fell into place. And I know they always kind of say luck is preparation meeting opportunity. But mm. I think, you know, I needed a change. I needed a challenge. I'd kind of had my eyes opened about what could be done with people with shoulder pain. And I up to then hated treating it because I thought it was a really complex joint. 
Um, and then Simon came and, and again, to cut a long story short, I got my job with him. And if I look at the mo- some of the most pivotal things in my career, meeting him was the, well, certainly one of, if not the most um, pivotal point, because he was just a massive trailblazer for physiotherapy. He was years before his time. He insisted on taking me to conferences. I might add, he made me prove my stripes. He was a horror to me for the first two years. It was in those days when the medics used to ridicule each other and, you know, show you up in front of everybody. So I remember in clinics, he shamed me into reading yet another book or another paper or another this because I hadn't necessarily given the best explanation. But once I'd done that, he was just incredible in that one he wouldn't lecture at a conference unless I was invited as well because Mm. he felt I was a really important part of how he treated his patients um and he also sent me all over the place to work with some amazing people I went to the hospital for special surgery in New York I went to Kentucky with Ben Kibler and Tim Yule um and then there just comes a point when you have to start having your own ideas and I just I felt incredibly privileged to have that opportunity um, and I remember a couple of colleagues kind of being a little bit derogatory and, oh, you're so lucky. And if you hadn't met Simon, you wouldn't be doing this. But, you know, I, I'm my own worst detractor. But at the end of the day, you've got to make the most of that opportunity. And yes, it was inspiring meeting people, but you've still got to put that into place. So I guess then my driver became, wow, I've been empowered by all these people. I've got somebody who believes in me that's given me a forum. One, I've got to make the most of that. And that's when I started doing a little bit of research to add some credibility to that. But also, I want other people to feel like this. You know, I want them to shortcut that feeling, oh, my God, I can't do this and it's too complicated and and help them learn from all the things that I'd learned from that made made it easier, but also acknowledge that you never stop learning. So he he was absolutely pivotal. And actually, Joe, sorry, I'm going on far too long. But the other thing that I'm the other thing that definitely I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now um, was when I did my MACP placement. So but just before I got my job working with Simon, I'd done my MACP weekends um, and I did some placements. And the placement I did with two people who are now my best friends um, just oh, change, just changed my clinical. Basically, I didn't clinical reason. I remember Janet saying to me, this is Janet Wiggins and Fee Creedon. And I remember Janet saying, I never realised what an information gatherer you are. And it just sounded so bad. I cried. I thought, oh, my God, I've been found out. <laughs> like, I'm a complete imposter. Oh, my God. And and she was fascinated at my reaction. <laughs> it was like, but that's what this is about. And so after my placement, I just... I don't know. I just didn't have to know everything. I didn't have to know the minute ideal tale. I just needed to know sound principles and be able to apply it. So it was so empowering to kind of realise that this skill of clinical reasoning really underpinned. And that sounds mad that I was that far in my career before I found that. But it also highlighted how differently people learn. So I guess there was lots of very pivotal things happened around the same time. Just tell me, I'm intrigued by that, um, by Janet's comment as well. So did she mean, when she said you're an information gatherer, did she mean you just asked more questions than you needed to? Or what was her point there? I, I think it was more that I kind of went through the process that we were taught to do. And rather than, I guess, being flexible in mm. pursuing that information, um, I just kind of get all the information and then make yeah. a decision at the end of it, as opposed to that kind of expert um 
I, of course, there's pattern recognition in there, but actually being able to just listen to the patient, get that information without that huge structure, yeah. but also it directing where I went rather than just following a script and then making the decisions at the end. Sure. And that takes confidence, doesn't it? Because I can remember that from um, not MACP days, but even earlier when I'd first learned to do a subjective um, and yeah, we had our list of questions, but it's almost like as I was asking the questions, my brain was going, and you know I was hearing all the answers kind of knowing that it was supposed to mean something but I was so focused on the fact that I had to ask these questions and this was an actual patient in front of me that my brain was almost like you know short-circuiting and I think it takes a bit of confidence to be able to relax and chill out and as you say just be flexible and realize okay there is more than one way to interpret these answers and I need to just relax and listen it yeah it doesn't come straight away does it with all of this no and I think to be fair as well where we need to give ourselves a break is you always need to go through that process of that structure to get confident Mm. in what you're trying to pick up um but you know I never forget again Louis Gifford uh, just an amazing clinician and again Mm. somebody who made learning clear and easy but he was a master at that and again not not long after I started my job um specializing he, I went on a course of his and he was a master at that, just listening. And I I remember him getting us to do an exercise where basically you'd have the structure of all the stuff that you'd normally ask. And he just asked a question and listened. And he got all those answers. Yeah, and he didn't even that. ask those questions half the time. Yeah. And that, that was massively kind of empowering and just thinking, actually, you just give people space. They tell you what they want you mm. to know. And yes, you might need to check up on some of the detail for those safety nets. But you're right. I think it does take confidence. And I think maybe you have, you know, depending on how you learn, you kind of have to go through that structure first. Mm. So you have got, you know, that you're not going to miss the things that might be, you know, dangerous or whatever else. Yeah. So thank you for that lovely potted history. If it's all right, I'm going to go back and pick out a few things (laughs) because there's so much in there. Um, You reminded me, actually, when you were talking about uh, having not got into med school and then... uh, rude phrase but kind of cruising and mucking your way around through your your first year and it reminded me of a guest I had a few podcasts ago Dr Adam Harrison who um so Adam told me that he was I think I think it was unusual within his family that he even got into uni uh, and it was quite a last minute decision to get into med school and then he completely mucked around and had to retake his first year um, I think he he's also a lawyer and I think he did the same thing in his first year there I mean he's a brilliant <laughs> man and you know, like you obviously very bright and it's an interesting pattern isn't it? it is there an element of sort of all or nothingness about you that you know if I can't do that then I'm gonna you know, Adam used the word sabotage I think does that yeah I oh I think that's a great insight Joe and yeah I I, funny enough when I knew I was speaking to you today I was you know reflecting on myself and I think there's probably a lot of truth in that it's like okay I'm just going to make it fail and then I'll have to start again and then regroup or whatever I mean I don't think I ever thought that consciously um, but I definitely didn't buy into physio and I was setting myself up to fail now ironically I scraped that you know I got what I needed to in the exam but I still had to retake it because of this woman but you know credit to her because mm. you know that really made me kind of sit up and listen and think actually get over yourself you know there's a lot of people here that are working really hard and I'm not saying I always found it easy but the first year you know it was like learn your anatomy and 
I, I lucked out in my first two exam because I think I'd learned five things and they all came up. So I was like, <laughs> what's going you know, thanks somebody. But actually, maybe I should stick around and do this a bit longer. But now I love that insight, actually. And I think that probably is very true. I'm a, you know, I've had to learn to tailor my perfectionist tendencies because that means I never get anything finished. Um, and that that that's been a real challenge, I think, through my professional career and in all the other things that I've done. Um, but yeah, I, I really like that actually. Mm. Yeah, and, and interesting that you bring up the um, principal at physio school, and then I can see a parallel with um, Simon Frostick putting you through your paces. It's um, you know I think these touchstones are really significant when to use your word, somebody sees something in you. So it sounds like both of them are quite hard on you, but because they saw something good, you're a bit like good parenting technique. But um, with Simon, you say he almost used uh, a bit of a shaming process to bring out what he thought he could see in you. How did that feel? Um, And what do you think about that in hindsight as a technique? Would you ever apply it to other people? I personally wouldn't. Um, I think at the time it was a real cultural thing in medicine. You know, every conference I went to, that's what they did. They just Mm. ridiculed each other and were pretty unpleasant and seemed to get a lot of, you know, satisfaction out of that. But to me, that was, you know, quite destructive. I think, I guess when I look at, you know, my dad and how he challenged me, he was such a high achiever, you know, it was quite hard to ever meet the expectations. And so I suppose there was always an element of, rising to that challenge and trying to prove people wrong and I think it was you know having a dad that was in the medical kind of in the medical world I guess you were very aware of culture and hierarchy so I think the fact that Simon was so you know even though he was pretty tough on me those first few years we still had some amazing conversations and I was never in doubt that he was invested in me as a person and Mm. it was always very much if you do this this and this then well look we can do this this and this and we've got to establish this unit we've got to make it something meaningful so we're doing the best for patients and that was always the shared ethos it was all about the patients and improving things for them but Yeah, it's really interesting because actually, I mean, I guess it fired me up. Mm. Um, You know, I got the job when other people didn't. So again, you kind of want to justify people's faith in you. But he, it's interesting, Simon very sadly died just before COVID last year. And he, I I remember his wife, you know, we all got together and tried to contribute to his obituary. and, And one of the common themes was he invested in people he believed in. If he spots somebody that was willing to put the graft in, willing to go that extra mile then he'd do everything he could to support that Mm. and that was definitely a consistent theme through his career I have to say I don't think his style ever changed and (laughs) I think as the cultures changed that was perhaps more difficult for younger people coming through he stopped doing it so much with the physios probably because I tried to knock him into shape a bit and suggest there may be some kinder ways of doing it Mm. but then he still didn't he just didn't suffer fools gladly and I think you know if you came and made a mistake and it was genuine because you misunderstood he'd kind of tolerate that but if it was because of lack of preparation or arrogance or complacency or not reading enough he'd call it out because he genuinely believed that that would prompt you to do better and if it didn't then he wasn't really interested in you being in his Mm. team anyway Mm. so he was very good at identifying the people that he wanted around him to kind of yeah when yeah in retrospect actually that was a kind of almost self-selecting um, yeah. either you cope with this or you don't sort of thing baptism of fire yeah and I yeah. guess it's, it's a version of 
um, building confidence by taking risks and then having success. But it sounds like it wasn't entirely voluntary on your part that you were no, taking no, those it, risks. It wasn't. But you know what? Looking, I mean, again, it's always really interesting to reflect on these things because at the time I just kind of did it. Mm. But I am one of those people. If you tell me I can't, I'm going to blow and show you that I can because it's mm. why can't I? You know, all right, I might not be able to beat Usain Bolt at 100 metres. I accept that. But, you know, when it's things that actually all I've got to do is graft um and find a way to do it then don't give me barriers do you know what I mean help me find the way to do it and if you won't help me I'll find the way but if you know if we do that together we're going to get there a whole lot quicker so even though I didn't necessarily like it I definitely responded to it Mm. and that's interesting because why don't I do that now um I think because I'm just not very nice I'm not very good at being like that Joe I just don't think it's in my nature and I'd rather empower people but I sometimes will ask people difficult questions Mm. because I think you can do the same thing without being quite so direct and not aggressive is the wrong word but so provocative you can achieve the same thing but in a gentler way that still really gets people to reflect and in fact Joe who's uh, my one of our was one of our fellows and now does the same job as me who's just an amazing clinician you know I always remember her I was doing a talk about communication and she got really upset afterwards and and wrote a, a reflection piece and I said why are you upset this is all about learning and she said because I feel like I should know this and it had been a real epiphany for her and so part of me thought oh my god that's back to Simon making me cry and yet all I'd done as far as I was concerned was give information Mm. again in terms of you know it it was pivotal in changing what she did and her learning so it it achieved a purpose but I I would argue I did it in a much gentler way yeah I yeah I mean learning invariably involves going through some discomfort doesn't it yeah for um, sure but the other side is is hopefully always worth it um, yeah, and I wonder, I'm projecting onto Simon, but I wonder whether because he saw so much in you, he almost had to um, show his colleagues that you were worth it in a way that at the time fitted with how they proved themselves to each other. Maybe, I don't know, almost like, look, she's been through your initiation process and survived. So- yeah, you know what? I think you're absolutely right because, it, it, you, well, again, when I look back, you know, physios just weren't invited to orthopedic no. conferences in those days. There was an absolute divide. Now, I think that's where it was an advantage having a dad that was a doctor because fundamentally I wasn't really scared of them. And it was just like, well, look, you know, the, you, you happen to have doctor before your name or mister, depending on what you're up to. And actually, that doesn't make you any more special. I know you will think hierarchically you are, but actually, I'm an important part of this story mm-hmm. and you need me or my or our team to get the best out of this. Um, so, yeah, no, I think you're right. And I, th- I think that probably did give it some credibility, actually. Again, it's really fascinating reflecting on these things, Joe. Mm-hmm. I think you're right. And, and I guess as well, I stood up to him. You know, once we had that relationship, I stood up to him. So, again, when I look at the consultants that speak to me now who were our fellows um, or did, you know, did placements with us or whatever, you know, they say to me now, it was really powerful to see that two people could be respectful, grow together, but not be afraid of challenging each other mm-hmm. and almost, you know, not worrying about that hierarchy. And I, I think you've got to be surrounded by people you trust that will call you out when you get it wrong. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think you're right. I think that probably was one of the reasons he did that because that was their culture for sure at the time. I was listening to a TED talk the other day and somebody put me on to a Margaret Heffernan TED talk and she was Mm -hmm. talking about exactly that um, 
having the courage really to go into debate with someone um, and expect that there'll be some disagreement and conflict. And she took it as far to say that you have to be so invested and committed to that process that it's a form of love. And I, I really, really like that, you know, because it's you know, too, too, um, to fall in love with someone makes you hugely vulnerable and you have to fully commit, don't you? And be prepared for the give and take and, and the push and the shove and what comes at you. And I, I really liked the idea that actually to go into debate and to be a, and to be brave enough to go into conflict with someone does show how much you actually respect and care for them. And I really hear that in your voice between you and the relationship you have with Simon. Not suggesting you're necessarily in love with him, but <laughs> it sounds like it was a good. Well, to be honest, when I went to conferences, there were a few people suggesting that that's the only reason I was there. So hey, it was oh, definitely gosh. something you had to deal with. I'm not sure who that was the biggest insult to, really. Probably poor Simon. But but yeah, I, and I I think that's so true. And I think it's that thing as well of having a relationship with somebody that it's all right to get it wrong. Mm. You know, it doesn't mean you're rubbish at what you do. You're just going to learn from that. You know, I love that that failure is first attempt in learning if you don't I I learn far more from what I get wrong than what I get right you know in so many areas of my life and I think as long as, long as you just see that so human mm-hmm. and as long as you learn from it and don't keep doing the same thing again then why not but yeah I'm, I, I think I was incredibly lucky that he invested in me and we got on you mm-hmm. know and we had a huge respect for each other um, he was probably a less political animal than I am, and that was okay. maybe to his detriment sometimes. Um, but then I, the other people that joined the team, you became very aware that everybody was adding their strengths, you know. So where any of us were lacking, other people filled in those gaps, and that's the magic of how the teams emer- kind of evolved over time. But, mm. yeah, and I think we kind of filled in each other's gaps for that period where it was just the two of us, for sure. It sounds it sounds really good and exciting. So mm-hmm. last time we spoke, Joe, you talked a little bit about your dad, and I found his story really interesting. Um, I've forgotten the details, but I'd love it if you um, just let me know again because he was a psychologist, but a little bit ahead of his time from my memory of our last conversation. Uh, yes, yeah, so dad was a psychiatrist who specialised in psychiatric oncology. So he um, he was a bit of a trailblazer. And I, and it's interesting, again, talking about my story with, you know, physios weren't doing that. Certainly at the time, psychiatry was really kind of um, a bit of a stigma. You know, if you, I always remember my mum saying, going to dinner parties, you know, it was like, don't say you're a psychiatrist. She didn't say that, but it was very much, you know, people um, were a little bit sniffy about it and it wasn't proper medicine. And he he always had ironically again had a massive passion about communication so he did a lot about um, medical students and how they were taught about communication but then he his real interests were helping people um, hear bad news um, and helping uh, ladies having mastectomy and patients um, sorry parents of kids with leukemia so those were his kind of three areas but he published massively on communication um he set up uh the connect course with uh basically a government initiative um for cancer health professionals again in terms of communication breaking bad news and doing those things better and that course was very successful a long time there's some shift in it now i think um and ironically it formed part of my masters and i didn't even know <laughs> mad and I'm like oh my god my dad's designers what's going on um so yeah he was a real trailblazer and he he again it was always about patience 
and he never saw no or you can't as a barrier and he ended up having his own research unit at Christie's in Manchester which is obviously a well-known cancer centre mm. and in fact they named the they named it after him when he died um, which was lovely uh, but yeah he was just he was ahead of his time because he wasn't afraid to push the boundaries and he wasn't afraid to change things. And I guess that was my influence. Mm. And my mum, to be fair, was no no different. She'll say that she is, but she, again, was a theatre nurse who became one of the first nursing directors. Um, so, she, you know, the medical director was a nurse and she was one of the first who did that. So, you know, she was no less ambitious or driven um but she probably just didn't do the 22 hours of 24 hours a day that my dad did because she had kids and stuff to sort out as well so but yeah no he was it's funny really because we you know like so many of us say we didn't necessarily have the best relationship because he was so into his work and he had massively high expectations of us because that was his experience as a kid he went to Cambridge he got a scholarship to Cambridge you know he was the cox for the Cambridge boat team he was just like a massive achiever um (laughs) But you could tell that he'd always had to fight for that credibility and yeah. he'd had to fight really hard to get things taken notice of. But when he did, boy, did he make a difference for sure. Mm. And did you feel the weight of his expectation? Did that weigh heavy? Oh. Or... I think I, you know what, probably that was a bit of a driver in my response to the challenging um way that prof went about things because you know I guess it resonated in some ways because clearly I didn't do good enough you know I was meant to be going to medicine and and going to St Andrews which is obviously a great university and then I wasn't and I think there was always this sense and it it was probably self-inflicted but there was always this sense that I'd never done well enough I wasn't good enough I was a disappointment etc etc um and we weren't in touch for a few years because he and my mum broke up But then when we got back together, it was interesting. He'd actually talked, he'd been invited to speak at a physiotherapy conference, um, which I wasn't at very sadly, um, talking about communication. But he'd obviously spoken to a few people. He said, you're doing all right, aren't you? (laughs) You're making a difference. And it was like, oh, my God. (laughs) And then it started a whole conversation. And it was great because then we realized that we just both shared this massive passion for communication, which I kind of knew. And, you know, I remember early in life sitting around the kitchen table. My dad would ask you a question and you'd be crying without even realising what he'd asked you because he was just so astute and tuned in. And he just Mm. used language so powerfully. And that always resonated with him. Sorry, with me. And I also remember a time when I had a patient early in my shoulder career, early in my physio career in Nottingham. And she'd um, this poor girl had been on a bike, put her arm out and her arm was amputated by a bus. Um, and she was one of the assistants so we all knew her really well and I remember saying I was really quite upset and I just said to dad I don't know what to say to this girl you know I said she's clearly struggling but how on earth do I ask her without opening a can of worms that I can't do anything about and he just went you don't have to do anything you just have to listen and acknowledge that it's really awful and let her talk because mm. that is the most powerful thing. And then if there is stuff that she clearly needs help with, you need to signpost it. You you can't do it because you're not a psychologist or a psychiatrist. And I guess those two things, the making me cry and this experience with this patient, again, in terms of touchstones, really, I always had that underpinning fascination with communication. And, and as I've said often, being our superpower, but I think he was massively influential in that for sure. Yeah, I know he really was ahead of his time, wasn't he? I mean, those kind of conversations, thankfully, are 
taking place a lot in physiotherapy, particularly around communication style and particularly around listening and not jumping in with the fix. Um, but yeah, gosh, he really was ahead of his time. And I'm really pleased. It sounds like you, the two of you did, albeit brief, have that moment of um, recognition of each other, which sounds really important. Yeah, for sure. And, it, you know, very cathartic. Interestingly, I did, again, another, God, so many pivotal things, Joe. It's like mad, isn't it, when you start <laughs> reflecting? But I did a communication module as part of my master's, and part of that was this Connect course that Dad had kind of designed. And that was quite cathartic because a lot of his papers were coming up on the screen when they were presenting. Mm. It was like, oh, my goodness, you really I don't think I'd really appreciated even until that point what he'd done, do you know, to know and what he'd achieved. So and to be honest, we kind of, you know, he was just very busy. He had a different life and and that, you know, things just drift apart. But, yeah, having that opportunity to kind of come back and say, wow, in some ways, I'd never be able to continue what he's doing. But in terms of his passion for empowering people about what communication can achieve, there's absolutely no doubt that part of my passion is continuing that for sure. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, it was lovely to kind of have that that yeah recognition I guess and it was nice finally to think that he felt that I had done all right I guess <laughs> yeah I know those those few small words but yes particularly from a parent <laughs> you've done yeah. all right it's quite powerful yeah for sure <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah so Joe, whilst it would be tempting for the rest of us to look on and um just assume that everything had been plain sailing and perfect and lucky Joe, she <laughs> had this amazing career I presume there were challenges along the way. Um, you can say no, it was all plain sailing. But <laughs> if there were, what what are the challenges that, that were presented to you as you went through this career? I think, I think some of the key challenges was the reactions of other people. I think that sometimes I found difficult, but then you always have to reflect on yourself that maybe you behaved in a way that made them feel like that. Certainly, I had a lot of negative uh, feedback from consultants at conferences when I first started going and lecturing with Simon, which kind of blindsided me a bit, you know, it was casting aspersions on why I was there. And it was nothing to do with my kind of intellectual ability. But, you know, I'm not Pamela Anson, never was. So it was certainly nothing to do with looks or anything else. So, you know, but I joke, but, you know, the bottom line was that actually just drove me and made me more determined to make sure every presentation I did, I made them sit up and listen and so even though it was a bit derogatory, you can either be ca- kind of kowtowed by that or think, actually, you know what, I'll show you. And those same people now, ironically, come up to me and go, oh, Joe, I've got my own specialist physio now and you should see what we're doing and this, that and the other. And it's so tempting to say, do you remember what you said to me? Yeah. But I'll, say, I'll be the bigger person and just smile and say, that's <laughs> fantastic. And then the other thing that, again, I, I remember actually I got really upset. I did cry about this, but it, I was in a meeting Um, with some other colleagues and there was always this kind of undercurrent because I was getting a lot of exposure I guess because obviously the trust liked to flag up what Prof and I Mm. were doing and where I'd been and all these kind of things and I'd done some research and you know I'm always massively kind of respectful of people who don't blow their own trumpet and I don't think I do but I've obviously in my enthusiasm had talked about these things and I'd changed the way learning was done and I'd set up stuff for staff because I wanted them to benefit from it but then my colleagues at the same level who were on other teams had a real go and just basically said it was all about me it was all about Mm self-promotion I thought I was so great and and it absolutely knocked me for six. And then I thought, well, why am I so upset? Is there some truth in this? And it was 
well no it isn't but it was back to that thing you're so lucky you've had this opportunity mm. and I was like look I, I've never set out to offend anybody I've never set up to say how I'm great because if anybody knows me I never think I'm great at anything I'm always trying to be better mm. um but that really blindsided me and did really upset me but then I guess it just made me more sensitive and all-encompassing so I'd rather than just doing it and going oh this is fabulous I'd maybe be a bit more sensitive to those people so I definitely learned from it but it really I, you come across that all the time don't you you know it's kind of well why are you doing that you know what's special about you actually the really important message is there's nothing special about me I just love what I do and I've had a forum and I've taken every opportunity that comes my way so what you should take from that is you can do exactly the same but let's not you know what let's be honest I grafted I had a husband that was away at sea I didn't have kids for the first few years so you know what I worked my socks off and I'm gonna I'm you know I really did and so I, I feel like I put a lot in to get the most of those opportunities and then when I got kids oh my god Joe that was a nightmare so I've got two <laughs> kids I've got a husband away at sea all my friends had done the kids thing already so they're back at work and it was like bad life planning (laughs) so you know I think in terms of key periods those were probably the consultants being horrid colleagues really denigrating what I was doing and suggesting it was about self-promotion and then the challenges of already having a role that I loved but then trying to balance it with family and not having a husband around and everything else those things were tough but they just all make you a different person and keep you growing, don't they? As long as you reflect on them, they don't let you, you don't let them undermine you. I say that the colleague things were definitely tough. They were no, definitely I hear tough. that one. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I can feel that. And actually it's, I'm really interested in self-promotion <laughs> or uh, not. I'm personally interested in self-promotion. I'm interested in the concept. And, you know, what I hear from you is that you were so enthusiastic about the subject matter that it, had to come out which is completely different to self-promotion I mean it was subject promotion um and I I, I'm really intrigued about this particularly in physio um you know we're encouraged to uh be more active on social media and to write blogs and to to communicate more with each other but it it is really hard, isn't it? It's hard to do it in the first place. And then it can be so crushing. You know, you just get that little dig and it's it's hard to keep going through that that stuff, isn't it? And so, yeah, my last podcast was with five women, uh, four physios and an OT. And the subject came up. I can't remember who it was that brought it up of that promoting yourself particularly as a woman and how easily the label difficult woman can be (laughs) put on you in a similar scenario where a man might be seen as oh really interesting opinion um and tell me more uh I don't know if it's a gendered thing or not or whether it's a profession thing but I do I do sense this deep discomfort with owning our passion really you know not even owning our success it's just being proud of our passion for what we do Oh, absolutely. And I think, yeah, it's it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think, I, I think you're right. And I, I don't know if some of it comes from, you know, we've been very NHS based, and it's very altruistic, and it's all about patients and everything else. But the fact is, if you're going to progress that for them, we have to keep challenging and moving forwards and being passionate is one of the things that potentially drives that. But I, I, I think what I'm, 
in terms of hearing what you've just said then, I think what I'm so, what's so different now in terms of our team and the people I'm surrounded by is that recognition that there will be the person that does all that extra stuff and produces exciting things. Mm. But you've also got to have all the other people who are just working hard and doing the job mm. and keeping it together and supporting the staff that to allow those people to do that. And that's what that's the wonderful thing about team, isn't it? But again, I think we need to just we do need to champion the good stuff. You know, there's so much tough stuff out there at the moment. And I'm, you know, I'm a great one for if I hear a podcast and somebody does a great job is sending them a personal message on mm. Twitter or, you know, maybe publicly. But I think sometimes it's almost more personal if you email them or send a message to say, good job. Loved what you said. Fantastic. Because I think there's so many great clinicians out there who put their toe in the water and then you never see them do anything again. And it's like, no, go, go. Because mm. the more voices we have saying this, the more powerful it is. And that was back to my point before. You know, I'm nothing special. I just love what I do. And if I've got an opportunity to talk about it, then great. I'm going to take it. But you've absolutely nailed it. There's so many. And what I, I love what you've done. I love what you've done with your website, you know, because, again, it's another it's another niche. It's another opportunity it's another thing that gets a great forum to therapy and and we have so many fantastic skills that are so applicable in so many different areas I think we do have to get better at just being not being embarrassed about it Mm. because it has so much to offer yeah no I agree and and I know I was speaking quite personally then um, you mentioned the website and the coaching for me you know this I, I didn't go out there to um be on other people's podcasts or to talk at all sorts of things but it, it definitely is a subject that I feel so strongly about that I have to get over myself and my own imposter syndrome <laughs> because I need people to know and <laughs> and I, I don't know your age Joan I won't ask you on a podcast but you know I'm late into my 40s now and I wouldn't have done this early in my career so anybody listening who's at the start of your career don't wait until it bursts out of you you are allowed to say what you're passionate about passionate about you're allowed to talk even if you don't know everything about the subject you're talking about raise the conversation yeah let's let's stop the tall poppy stuff in physio (laughs) I couldn't agree more and I think that's where it comes down to being you know debates really healthy but let's not get offended by it if somebody disagrees with you it doesn't matter it just makes you reflect and maybe they're right maybe you're wrong but let's be honest a lot of what we thought 10 15 years ago has been completely thrown out the window and now we're having to look at things differently in terms of what matters so we just need to embrace that you know uncertainty is part of life but we spend our whole life trying to prove it and then realizing we probably know less than we know before but at Mm. least there's some key things that give us a, a structure to go forward and passion is just you know it's so engaging for the people and I think even being passionate about sharing the fact that it's tough making sense of what's out there and sharing how you've made sense of it or how you doing you know in terms of actually getting clinicians to look after themselves a bit because we're spending so much time looking after everybody else and if COVID's done nothing else it's shown a massive light on that and how important it is Mm. so yeah no I agree with you you know I am unfortunately not in my late 40s (laughs) <laughs> a bit later on in life sadly but again I would I would reiterate that you know I'm thinking when I started my journey how old was I god I can't do the maths I was quite I was a lot younger anyway I know I hadn't obviously had kids at that point but I was a bit late having kids to be fair but I, I just I agree with you I think it's if you're passionate about something and you've got a message that you want to get out there you know as long as you're honest and you're open to things that you don't know or people might know more about then that just starts a conversation so again in itself that's got to be positive yeah I agree and I think if there's one thing not to lose uh through COVID it's 
it's almost the enforced humility that COVID has brought about, the, the flattening of the structures and the realisation of how little we knew, I mean, yes, of how to manage COVID. That was a real leveller, wasn't it? Because none of us had yeah. faced anything like that before. But the the way we had to come out of our uh, clinics and our silos and had to come and ask each other questions and admit what we didn't know. And, you know, I, I love the humility that has come about by such an unfortunate circumstance. But, you know, if we're going to keep anything, I, I'd say let's let's kind let's try and retain some of that. So, Joe, what's, what's next for you? Um, more of the same or any changes of direction planned? Oh, such a great question. Um, so, I mean, I mean, my, I love doing the education side of things. And obviously, I've got COVID's kind of accelerated the online side of things. So that's given me an opportunity to work on that. So I'm always looking at ways of making education reflect lots of different people's learning needs and looking at ways of doing it differently. So I'll definitely continue on that journey. Um, into, I'm doing slightly less in the NHS. I did a retire and return in uh, December, mm-hmm. which was hilarious. Everybody says I just went away for a month and came back. Nothing's <laughs> really changed, which is exactly how it feels. Um, but I do do less hours in the NHS now because everything was just getting completely out of control, even with COVID and not traveling to do my lecturing. I still felt completely overwhelmed with the amount of work I had to do. And it was a it kind of catalyzed a decision that I knew I had to make. Um, potentially some exciting things happening in terms of private practice and some other projects that I'm potentially involved in, but I can't say a lot about those at the moment. Fair enough. Um, but yeah, just really looking at, I, I just, you know, I just love trying to create resources and opportunities for people to learn, to share from the things I've learned in terms of mistakes. So education will always be a big part of what I do going mm. forwards for sure. But then I, I'm a great believer that I still want to be treating patients because I don't understand how I can make it real for the clinicians if I'm not doing it every day, if I haven't got examples. So, but I just keep striving, Joe, to keep the balance of those things. So I have some time with my absolutely fabulous family as well. <laughs> Brilliant. I love the I love the fact that you use the word striving to achieve balance. <laughs> always striving, always striving. <laughs> Len Funk, who's a consultant in Manchester, sent I, I was trying to find it actually today so I could share it with you. I'll have to look, get him to send it me again. Mm. But when I was having it, he was having a bit of a busy time and it all got a bit too much. So he stopped say, started saying no to a few things. And I remember having a conversation with him over dinner at a conference, and he sent me this fabulous 10-point thing of questions to ask yourself when you get an invite to do something. <laughs> and it was literally it's like, does it have to be you? Could you give an opportunity to one of the team, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But it was just one, the fact that he cared enough to send it, send it to me was just awesome. Yeah. Um, but secondly, it was it was brilliant. And I now do that every time I get asked because I'm very bad at saying no, because it's like, oh, it's another opportunity. Oh, it's something different. Mm. Oh, I can do this. But I'm realising, you know, I really like my family. I really like spending time with them. So actually, when I'm weighing up that decision and also I've got an amazing, you know, our team are fabulous. There's so many great people there and they all deserve opportunities. And they're doing more and more now, which is mm. just fabulous and makes me really proud. So it's it's great. Yeah. Delegating and creating that. Legacy. Yeah. And not it doesn't have to be me as long as the message is getting out there. Mm. So do you, um, I'm just thinking about the this being the You Matter podcast and around um, clinician well-being, do you have any um, uh, areas of your life that are consciously about your self-care or is it about keeping that um, balance, as you say, or trying to achieve the balance? 
Yeah, it's it's good. It's interesting, isn't it? I used to ride. Um, I used to have my own horse and I used to compete. And that was my complete switch off. And that's what I consciously did and did for as long as I possibly could, because it made me do something that was nothing about work, nothing about being a mum, anything else. It's just what I did. And I absolutely loved it. Um, but then when my husband got made redundant and retired, etc., I think it was the horse or my husband, because <laughs> I'm I'm not very good at being a happy hacker. I have to have a, you know, a kind of a focus and a, a competition that I'm working up to. And obviously it just the horse was too good to kind of sit in a field. So I sold the horse. And then I have to say for a bit, I was probably not very good at keeping that work life balance. Gin and mm. tonic is not a good coping strategy. <laughs> um don't want anybody to think I'm an alcoholic I'm not I just mentioned gin and tonic a lot um but then so I used to run so I got back into my running and actually that's what I do for me so I'll go running three times a week with a friend luckily we're fit enough now that we can actually talk while we run so it's a bit of an unload as well um and that to me is that's my that's my very valuable kind of 45 minutes three times a week Mm. and then Again, I walk, my son likes walking. He's great at kind of self-care in terms of meditation and exercise and going for a walk. And so, you know, he'll quite often say, right, mum, time for a walk. And so I have good time with him. Um, Again, if I feel things are getting a bit bonkers, I'll go and visit my son over in Nottingham, who's at university there. So I just, I think I, I recognise the signs when I'm just starting to, you know, it's just getting a bit busy. I need a little bit of slack, but that running and that space for me and walking, they're definitely the things I do for me. Cause I love that. You know, I either love going on my own and listening to a, you know, a book. I don't tend to listen to anything very educational because I just quite like to switch off mm. completely. Um, but that three times a week with my mate, um, I think for both of us, we both said it a couple of times, actually, we really miss it if it gets missed for whatever reason, because yeah. it's just a real, it's all about us. It's not about anything else. Yeah, and I think that speaks really, all. it will speak to physios and other clinicians listening that I think sometimes you get the impression, maybe from the way it's presented, that self-care and well-being is all about slowing down and doing less. Um, and that usually is anathema to physios as I can't do that. So I'm enjoying. Um, but self-care can be a very active process and, and it actually needs to be quite a conscious process. And it's yeah important, like you say, to recognise it because it's when we become on, unconscious, isn't it, that you, we realise it's building up and, yeah, sometimes hits critical levels before we actually notice it. So, yeah, I think that recognition is really I, I think that's so true. And I think it's know, it's knowing when it's getting there before it gets there. And, yeah. and, and I wouldn't say that I've always got it right. But I think, you know, I hear myself. I did, funny enough, I did a psychological first aid role during COVID when I was mm. redeployed. And if anything signposted, I mean, one, I spent the whole time telling people to be kind to each other. And we took some stuff back to the department and recognised what people were going through. But it was absolutely that thing. It's okay to not be okay, Mm -hmm. And, you know, and surrounding yourself with people that you can be vulnerable with. And you can say, actually, I'm struggling a bit at the moment. And I'm incredibly lucky that I've got friends and family that I can do that with. But I think you're right. I think it doesn't have to be I'm going to lie in a lounger or have a massage that run achieves loads of things and as I say the fact I can talk during it now as well is a, an absolute bonus <laughs> mm. oh, brilliant so Joe, thank you thank you for being so open and for giving us that lovely um history which uh, I mean no surprise but presents you as a, a real person <laughs> and <laughs> you know not to take away in any way the immense success you've had in your career but I think it's it's more inspirational to see somebody 
uh, do that and be real and um, be comfortable with the challenges and the failures. And yeah, thank you so much for being the person you are in physiotherapy. It's it's incredibly important for us to have people like you in the profession. So, oh, Joe, that's so kind. But I likewise write back at you. And I think, you know, for me, I think it's lovely to hear those things. But I think there's just an amazing amount of fantastic therapists that can all make a big difference just by sharing that passion and believing in what they're doing. And I do feel very lucky, but it means a huge amount that I do, I am real. And that that comes over because I think my big message is anybody can do this, anybody can create those opportunities. So you know, if you want to do it, just believe in yourself and, and just go for it. And don't worry about failing because you learn so much from that. But thanks so much for having me. It's I feel like I've really indulged myself going through my life history over the last hour. So you've done very well. well I'm very happy to give you that that gift. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. And you answered my last question, which is your advice for for other people, and that's a great message. So just before we finish finish up, Joe, is there anything you'd like to direct people to that you're doing at the moment, or any ways that people can get in touch with you? Anything you'd just like to leave people with at the end? Um, well, if anybody wants to contact me, I've got the least cool Twitter handle of at shouldergeek1, and I'm generally pretty good at responding to things. Um, just about to launch the Clinical Edge online course, so there'll be a load of free webinars and free education things. And again, we do a Facebook Live every Monday evening, um, which will be starting again a week on Monday. And again, it's all free. You just join in. We have discussions, and it's just about sharing knowledge about interesting shoulder stuff. Um, or patients with interesting shoulder stuff um, <laughs> and case studies, controversies in the literature, whatever. So, you know, to contact me, the Twitter is probably the easiest. But as I say, just look out for all those free resources because it is all about sharing knowledge. Brilliant. Thank you, Joe. Thank you so much for your time. Good luck with that retirement. I'm not sure either you <laughs> or the rest of us are going to really allow that to happen. But yeah, good luck. <laughs> Thanks so much. I'll keep you posted. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Joe. Take care. Take care. Bye for now. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Jo Gibson. She did nothing to dispel the myth that she is wonderfully approachable and down to earth, as I said at the start. But I hope, like me, you learned a lot more about the person behind their reputation and the, the clinical brilliance. If you would like to listen to future podcasts and receive notifications, then don't forget to subscribe to You Matter. Let me know what topics you would like to be discussed in the future. Let me know any guests you'd like me to interview. And let me know if you would like to be a guest on You Matter and come and talk about things you're interested in, passionate about, struggling with. Chances are there will be many other clinicians wanting to hear about the same things and, and work through the same issues. If you would like to know more about my work, then take a look at my website, www.mehab.co.uk. There's information on there about uh, my community, my coaching services, blogs, all sorts of options for discussion around this funny world of healthcare that we all navigate and inhabit. I look forward to seeing you next month where I will be interviewing Evie Martin from Physios Online. In the meantime, have a wonderful month. And remember, if you are a busy clinician looking after people all day and every day in all spheres of life, then take some time because you matter. Mm-hmm.